listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Welcome to the Global News Update. I'm your host, Thomas Fretwell. This is the show bringing you cultural commentary from a biblical perspective. And this show is actually a a new podcast coming under the feed of the Theology and Apologetics ministry. So please uh, make sure you're subscribed to that. Uh, We will be just releasing the usual Bible studies and apologetics content through there. But the idea of this podcast is to help you have a way to keep up with the very fast moving news cycle and just to offer some insights from the perspective of a biblical worldview and how we should understand and, and stay informed in in, uh, in this world. So the idea is we'll, we'll try and take a few months worth of, of significant news stories and just combine them and offer some commentary here. Now we have been very busy in the news cycle, obviously we've had the Easter weekend and the Passover weekend, so let's just go through uh, a few of the items that appeared in the news at this time. And of course, obviously one of the first items we we need to talk about is the uh, the tragic fire at Notre Dame Cathedral. Let me play you this clip. Good evening. It is one of the most famous buildings in the world. It has stood on the banks of the River Seine for more than 800 years. Tonight, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is completely engulfed by fire. So the Notre Dame Cathedral, now obviously this is the the Cathedral of Our Lady as it's known, particularly within Catholicism, it dates back to the 12th century. So this is a very old building and just that fact alone really we should kind of grieve the loss of history there that can never be brought back. But not all of the cathedral was destroyed, actually most of the old 12th century part is is absolutely fine. Um, The first stone of this cathedral was laid back in 1163 in the presence of the Pope, Pope Alexander at the time, and the structure itself took over 200 years to complete being finished 1345 and obviously over the years it's been damaged and it's undergone repairs as most of these cathedrals have Uh, and the most recent part was the the big spire that we saw and that very moving footage of the fire um, just completely destroying that spire that actually only dated back to 1852 and the entire roof I believe was destroyed at that same time. Now obviously on the one hand this is a tragedy these sort of historic buildings cannot be replaced and yet on the other hand I I think I'd like to offer a little bit of commentary on some of the eulogies that have been appearing around the destruction of Notre Dame from both secular and Christian audiences because I, I to be honest I find them a little bemusing one of the main things, there was a famous photo that appeared in newspapers, the um, the sort of the charred inside of the cathedral, but yet there was this still this gold cross that uh, survived on the altar, and this seemed to get uh, a lot of people very sentimental. Now, on the one hand, it was a very poignant and telling image, and I think it's right to use these events to think about where we are and where we are going as sort of Western society. However, as I I read this, I couldn't help but think of the many ways that this is maybe just a little bit hypocritical of France. You see, France as a nation, they really do pride themselves on being a, a very secular, if not atheistic nation, uh, really really since the French Revolution. And if you understand, obviously, some of the, the Catholic history in that nation, you know, this makes a little bit more sense. But to sort of start getting all upset about and talking about what this cross means, it really made me think of Nietzsche's parable of the madman, Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist. Uh, he wrote a parable called uh, the madman and it's really where we get the phrase god is dead from and it talks about this man who runs into the marketplace crying god is dead god is dead and the idea that he's talking about in this parable is that he he's actually 
saying that with the the evisceration of God from society, we must understand that this means we will have to remove all of the values that were built upon God. It's a complete turnover of society. And in this parable, he's actually talking to his fellow atheists that they are not ready to sort of lay down the concept of Christian morality they still want to hold on to that, but yet deny God too. And there's one thing fa- at the end of this parable, it reads like this. It says, it has been related further that on the same day, the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem aeternum Deo, led out and called to account. He is said always to have replied nothing, but what after all are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? And when we think about some of these great old cathedrals, I have to admit, I I do see them maybe as sepulchres of God, of a bygone era. Obviously not in the sense that Nietzsche proposed here, but yet I think this is interesting for us to think about the direction that Western society is going, as we do really consider God nothing more than a, a shadow of the past in, in society, and these buildings are testimony to that in many ways. Now, being Christians, we understand this is not true. God is alive, he is living and active, and his word is living and active. But at the same time, we are often grieved by the, the secularism that we find in the Western world and the severing from our Christian roots and our Judeo-Christian foundations. One of the things that I've noticed is that even the, the evangelical and Protestant community are really lamenting this loss. Now which, like I say again, on the one hand I agree with in many, many ways, but this sort of seemed to go a bit further with many of these same people sharing their reflections on visiting the cathedral and meeting God inside the building. And again, I'm not denying that God can show up in the most unusual places to meet people, that's not my point. However, we must must be careful that we don't whitewash history here. You see, Notre Dame, it was originally built using money raised from selling indulgences, a little like the the St. Peter's Basilica was in the Vatican. This was obviously from the Catholic Church fleecing the people. The idea was of an indulgence was that people would give it to the church and they would then get one of their loved ones released from purgatory early. And obviously we find these doctrines to be uh, abhorrent in the Protestant tradition and completely false. More than that, inside Notre Dame, actually in the cathedral in Paris, there's, there's, a, there's a painting of Christ awarding Mary a scepter and an angel crowning her with a crown because they believe that she is the Queen of Heaven. And some of the, we call this Mariolatry, so some of the sort of uh, really idol worship of Mary that we see in parts of Catholicism as represented on these paintings and inside this cathedral is again, takes away the place of Christ and it's completely unbiblical and we must also remember some of the history that happened it was outside the front of Notre Dame Cathedral that the St Bartholomew's Day massacre took place in 1572 this was when Catholics began killing the Huguenots they were a Protestant group who were teaching uh, the sort of the Reformation teachings at the time following Luther and these people and coming into conflict with the Catholic Church and on the St Bartholomew's Day massacre there was mass bloodshed as the Huguenots were killed uh, in the streets of Paris up to 10,000 people were said to have been murdered on that day and the Protestants there being labelled as heretics. So whilst it's fine to lament the loss of a historic building, we must understand the history that goes with it, we mustn't whitewash it and we must look 
into the future to try and learn the lessons. Obviously, Jesus tells us that we are to be men who understand the times so that we may have knowledge of what Israel should do. And for us now as the church, in this, as we're moving into this, this era in a very secular Western society, we need to move forward and stand firmly upon the word of God. That was how the Easter weekend, the Passion Week, really started, um, but it didn't stop there. Let's go back to the UK now and talk about the Prime Minister's Easter message. Let me play for you another clip. But for many Christians around the world, such simple acts of faith can bring huge danger. Churches have been attacked, Christians murdered, families forced to flee their homes. So you heard there Theresa May, that was part of her Easter message there. And again, I'm pleased that she's raising the issue of persecution of Christians around the world. It is a serious issue that needs some response. However, at the same time, some of the things that are going on in the UK at the moment make me a little uh, reticent to believe that it's entirely sincere. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, he also used his Easter message to express solidarity with millions of Christians suffering around the world for their faith. Mr Hunt spoke of his commitment to promoting religious freedom. He did this by uh, issuing 40 Lenten letters that he sent out to various Christians who have experienced persecution. And in fact, the first letter was sent out to uh, someone called Brother Andrew. Uh, if if you're a Christian, you're probably familiar with that name. He's the founder of Open Doors Ministry, uh, author of The God Smuggler. He used to smuggle Bibles and has been a, a friend of the persecuted church. Uh, in that letter, uh, Jeremy Hunt wrote this to Brother Andrew. I want you to know that the UK stands in solidarity with persecuted Christians around the world and that British diplomats will continue to advocate for them and for those who are being denied the basic right to practice their faith. And again, this is a good thing that these, these things are being talked about by the government. However, it reminds me of a, a story of a Iranian Christian convert being denied asylum by the UK Home Office on the, he was claiming asylum that he was in a dangerous position now that he had converted to Christianity and that Islam, particularly as it's practiced in Iran, was now a dangerous place for him. He would be considered a heretic and, and could be killed for this. To which our Home Office replied by quoting him a a Google list of Bible verses that also seem to be in, interpreted violently and thus denying him uh, asylum. Uh, this just really shows how unfamiliar and how poorly people are educated in the religious uh, worldviews in the UK now. Um, so as much as I, I want these things talked about, we need to advocate for our brothers and sisters, the Bible says, as though we were in chains with them. I think there's a lot more work to be done. And this moves us again to the very sad and uh, next news item that we have here and this of course was the the easter sunday bombings in sri lanka let me play for you clip three good evening from sri lanka where the authorities are blaming a local islamist group for the easter sunday attacks which have left 290 people dead and 500 others injured so just after all these items we wake up as many of us are preparing to celebrate the resurrection of our lord to the tragic news that eight bombs have been detonated in Sri Lanka, leaving over 321 people dead and over 500 injured. That's a huge amount there. And then let's be very uh, precise about this. This was Islamic attacks against Christians. These attacks are shocking, appalling and despicable. Many of the dead simply being worshippers, being women and being children. And of course, I have to really lament the, the, let's call it what it is, the pathetic response from much of the world in the way they've responded to this. Now, 
as this spread, there have been many, many more responses that are in fact very good. There's been lots of newspaper reports and articles writing about the way that these people have responded to it. But initially, there were some things that we need to highlight. And there's some lessons we can learn from this. The first thing really I want to point out is that these targets were ideologically driven. Three Catholic churches were bombed and three hotels, particularly those catering to Western tourists and people having like Easter brunches and Easter lunches afterwards. So these were very ideologically driven targets. They were not random at all. Now, this teaches us something about the jihadist uh, mindset. You see, in their mind, their imagination, Western Christianity is pretty much the same as Western liberal individualism. We see this all, all the time. It sort of goes back to the crusade mindset. Western uh, values are considered Christian. They don't really make the distinction between Western liberalism, Western Christianity, definitely not between Catholic and Protestant and all these sorts of things. In, in their mind, it's much more broad than that. And this is why we see these hotels and also these churches being targeted. And again, not for the first time. Easter Sunday is often a day where we see tragic news like this. Now, back here in the UK, unfortunately, the fear of being labelled Islamophobic I believe has actually honestly stopped many people from speaking up with the sort of strong voice that they need like this. And again, I find this very confusing because if you remember back to just just a little bit before and we had that tragic shooting at Christchurch in the mosque uh, in New Zealand, I believe, recently, which again, very, very tragic and we can condemn it categorically 100%. But what was interesting was the different responses from world leaders, particularly those on the different side of the political divide around the world. The way they responded is telling, I believe, of a problem that is really uh, systematic in the way we view politics and view religion at the moment. Now, to just give you a demonstration of this, let's compare the, the tweets from Hillary Clinton about uh, New Zealand and then her tweet about Sri Lanka. Now in her tweet when after the, the New Zealand massacre, she condemned it quite rightly, very strongly. She identified the perpetrator being a white nationalist and she condemned that. And she identified the victims, Muslims, and she expressed solidarity with the entire global Muslim community. Now I don't have an issue with any of these things, but what I do have an issue is is when over 300 people are killed on Easter Sunday, that there's a broad tweet that goes out where she does not really so clearly identify the victims and the perpetrators and does not express solidarity for the entire community. Rather than being, again, a sort of uh, Islamic attack against Christians, it was defined as a racist attack against Easter worshippers. Obviously there, for some reason, no one really wanted to use the word Christian, and rather than being a specific Islamic attack, it was identified merely with the concept of hate and racism, and therefore we need to remove all hate and racism. And again, no one's going to deny that. The lack of specifics here is very, very interesting. And again, Obama did the same thing, and many other people did the same thing. Now, Immediately, I'm sort of uh, hesitant to jump into this debate and make a big deal of it, but lest I be pulled into the bipartisan political view that we find throughout the world at the moment. Obviously, I think something like this needs to be talked about for what it is, not as a way of increase the popularity or to, to score points from a p different political perspective. And unfortunately, this is what we, we, we see happening in a lot of the, the world today. Now, the problem is, wh why are these responses so different? I believe there is an issue here that does need 
need to be exposed. You see, the Western liberal uh, sort of leftist view cannot really deal with the fact that globally Christians are the most persecuted group of people on the earth. That was a, a Pew survey that came out recently. Um, there's no doubt about it. Christians are the most persecuted group of people on the earth. You see, the problem with this is it goes against the narrative that Christianity is an oppressive, colonial, almost sort of Trumpian exercise around the world. This is, this is the narrative. This is how Christianity is often spoken about and dismissed so uh, flippantly in our culture today. The problem is the view that Christians are globally persecuted does not fit with the intersectional hierarchy that has been created in leftist politics today. The intersectional hierarchy is this sort of victimhood, this, this hierarchy of victims. And if you, the more category, the more intersectional categories you score into, the higher you are up on that uh, that hierarchy. And obviously, the fact that Christians are not supposed to be high up on that at all. It's seen as a white colonial religion and therefore it just doesn't work for them. Now the problem is, now for us in the West here, we still are protected by many of the, the fundamental values that the, the Judeo-Christian worldview has bequeathed to our society. The problem is many of our brothers and sisters around the world are not protected like this. So when we refuse to speak up and clearly identify the problems going on, we leave non-Western Christians exposed. And this is why all the time we hear of bombings in churches, we hear of, um, well, you don't hear of it in the main media, but if you track it down through persecution and ministries, you can, you can find out about these things, like Nigerian Christians being massacred by Fulani herdsmen. And unfortunately, these tragedies are happening all over the world at quite an increasing rate. And this is something that is very serious. We need to wake up to it. We need to raise our voices about this now, and we need to push back against this ideology that ref that stops us from from highlighting the persecution of Christians around the globe that was some of the tragic events that we saw this Easter and of course obviously we don't grieve as those who have no hope but we grieve as those who do have hope knowing that Christ obviously has defeated death this is what Easter is all about Let's change paces now. Let's have a little look at science and technology. Researchers in China recently announced the discovery of, a, as they said, a treasure trove of fossilized sea creatures, some of these being soft-bodied organisms. Now, this is a very rare occurrence. Tissues normally decompose and are not preserved unless there's been a sort of rapid aquatic event. Now, obviously, some speculate that marine life had been buried in a storm in the Cambrian period. So that's sort of up to 500 million years ago, the Cambrian period. Um, and obviously, Christians are, are pushing back against this. Some sort of creation scientists who are saying that these, these finds actually point to the Great Flood as outlined in the Bible. Let me unpack a few of the bits from the article and some of the research and then some of the Christian scientists response to this. The soft-bodied fossils uh, were very significant in that their eyes and their gills and their organs were so well preserved. There were also a number of juvenile creatures embedded in the rock. Quote, this is from the, the researchers, they say one of the most incredible things about this finding is the pristine condition of many of these specimens, fossils that haven't been substantially affected by impacts of time, and in them you can clearly see soft tissues like eyes, tentacles and gills. The researchers told the outlet that the creatures must have been rapidly buried in sediment by a storm to have been preserved so pristinely. Uh, Zhang and his co-authors wrote in their technical report in Science that sediment gravity flows trapped these creatures. And they also noted protection from bioturbation. This is um, where creatures churn through mud and obliterate bodies in their hunt for buried nutrients. Uh, he explained rapid burial of this, uh, this many organisms happens nowhere today. 
and bioturbation happens all over, so something unique must have happened back then. And this is where Christian uh, creation scientists, particularly Brian Thomas from the Institute for Creation Research, he comes back and he says, well, something unique did happen back then, and it was called the Genesis Flood. He goes on to say that the biblical flood gives a cause for the widespread C4 turmoil like gravity flows. He goes on to say we also need the seafloor to dry out before bioturbation can happen. And obviously the answer is, well, the flood only lasted a year. The flood mud soon dewatered and quickly hardened. The Bible says that the waters covered the land and then washed off the surface of the earth. We should therefore expect to see soft-bodied creatures locked in hardened mud on dry land, which is exactly what we do see. Now, as creationists, obviously, we understand that the Genesis flood started with the opening of the fountains of the deep, Genesis 7:11, uh, so that marine invertebrates found in the Cambrian rock represents first layers of the flood. That is a record of the organisms that likely lived and died in the seas. It does not represent an evolutionary event of diversification, but is the result of the biblical catastrophe of Noah's time. You see, flood geologists see the Cambrian deposits as some of the first of many layers deposited during that flood year. Also, uh, the secular researchers describe the original soft unaltered proteins in Cambrian sea sponges from Canada. Proteins can last thousands of years, but not millions of years, Brian Thomas outlined. And then finally, secular scientists have reported radiocarbon in Cambrian fossils. Now, radiocarbon lasts no longer than 100,000 years, yet here it is. Now, Brian Thomas and, and some other creation scientists, uh, all, all of them uh, PhD scientists, um, pointed out that many of the fossils look like what we have today. They look exactly the same. As, as Zhang remarked for the original Chinese team who found it, jellyfish look just like jellyfish. There's been no evolutionary change over 500 million years. Brian Thomas concludes that these and other creatures like sea jellies and tiny mud dragons appear fully formed out of nowhere, just as if God created them. And in fact, so obviously this, this scientific evidence here is completely uh, as we would expect to find with the biblical narrative of the flood. Let's move now over to Jerusalem, Israel. This is back in February, actually, so pulling a slightly older news story is just a very interesting one. Uh, February the 7th, Israeli boy on school trip finds ancient coin marked with inscription King Agrippa. And he is obviously the leader who killed James and jailed Peter. Uh, the report reads that an Israeli boy who took a school trip to the Shiloh Valley, he found this coin and it turned out to be uh, linked to the biblical king Herod Agrippa. Now, if you remember uh, the book of Acts, let me read to you the book of Acts verses 1 to 5 and we see this character come up. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God to the church. Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa. Now, Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great, who sought to have Jesus killed following the word of the Saviour's birth. So in this one coin, we have confirmation of a number of biblical characters who were very, very closely connected to our Lord. This is just amazing historical confirmation of the historical accuracy that we have found in the Bible. So that's a very, very interesting uh, news report there. 
Now let's stay uh, with the theme of Israel and let's widen it out and look at the topic of Israel and anti-Semitism because this uh, is one area of news that is just moving so quickly and it's very worrying to see how things are progressing. Let's start back April the 23rd, so again nearing the end of April. A Labour MP apologised for sharing fake news about the IDF abusing Palestinian youth. Now in the UK, if, let me just explain to you a little bit of what is happening in British politics right now. One of the main parties, the Labour, British Labour Party, have been fighting sort of a, a year-long crisis of, of uh, kind of exposed anti-Semitism within their party. And really the reason is if they wanted to stop this, they should stop doing things that are blatantly anti-Semitic. Unfortunately, they are just not able to do that, as this news story illustrates. The Labour MP Graham Morris, basically what happened is he shared a video of some soldiers beating up a young boy. And he tweeted out with this video, he says, marvelous, absolutely marvelous. The Israeli army, the best financed, best trained, best equipped army in the world, caught on camera beating up Palestinian children for the fun of it. May God forgive them. What would Jim Royal say on an Easter Monday? And you can sort of sense the glee that he almost has here in, in, in tweeting this. However, People pushed back against this and it was very quickly exposed that this video was not the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, it was actually a video of Guatemalan troops and the video had first been released by Al Jazeera in 2015. And he issued a rather pathetic apology. He said, you are right and many apologies for my honest mistake, there are, but there are lots of verified, documented examples of IDF abusing Palestinian child prisoners that I have seen myself in court in the West Bank. Now, what he's basically saying is, oh, right, well, it doesn't really matter if this one's fake, because I know it happened, so it's fine. Um, the, the IDF are still uh, abusing Palestinian children. It's really not an apology, and we really wonder why the Labour Party has a problem with anti-Semitism at the moment. So that's the UK. Let's head over to the USA. There was an article on April the 24th that came out in the New York Times claiming that Jesus was a Palestinian. And this gained more press than it probably usually would around the world because of the fact that it was retweeted by Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar is the congresswoman for Minnesota. And she retweeted this op-ed that appeared in the New York Times, which claimed that, quote, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was most likely a Palestinian man with dark skin. And now uh, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, who is the Associate uh, Director of the Global Social Action Agenda at the Simon Wiefensal Center, he, he called out um, Ilhan Omar for this and the New York Times for promulgating the notion that Jesus was a Palestinian. Cooper told the journal in a statement via email that it's a grotesque insult to Jesus, born in the land of Israel, and to Christianity to say that Jesus was a Palestinian. He claims quite correctly Palestinian was a name made up by Romans after they crucified thousands, destroyed the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and exiled the people of Israel from their homeland. This is referring to what happened really in 70 AD and also then obviously in uh, 135 AD by the Emperor Hadrian. Yet even more, it's important to understand that if we just read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ was Jewish. He was from the tribe of David. He was from Judea. Um, he kept the Sabbath. He observed Passover. He taught in the synagogues. Really, to claim that he was a Palestinian is is just false. It's so obviously false. Why do people make this claim? And I believe Cooper here identifies this, and I believe he's right on, and I'll read his entire quote for you here. He says, the claim that Jesus was a Palestinian is so bizarre 
that the question becomes what one gains by making that allegation. For people who have no theological or historical rooting, the idea that Jesus was a Palestinian creates a new narrative for Palestinian history, which otherwise does not date back very far. If one can say that Jesus was a Palestinian 2,000 years ago, then that means Jews are occupying Palestinian land. And I believe this is really the motivation for those who make this claim. Um, Ilhan Omar is not the first. We've heard this from Yasser Arafat, from um, Louis Farrakhan, various different people we've heard this claim from, uh, all of whom really do have a record for, for being quite anti-Semitic. And of course, obviously, trying to rewrite the Palestinian revisionist history, that is, again, the preferred narrative of many today. So we need to be uh, educated about this, and we really need to stand against these things. Of course, Jesus speaks to people of all ethnicities and nationalities, whether it be Israeli, Jew, Palestinian, or any other nation. His, his call to come to him as Saviour and Lord goes out to all of them. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ Jesus. Um, the way of salvation is open to all. We must remember that. But we need to understand the ideology and the politics that's pushing some of these statements. But it didn't stop there. Unfortunately, we had a lot more. April the 25th, the New York Times publishes an anti-Semitic cartoon. And this was quite a bad cartoon. It depicted US President Trump wearing a kippah, being led by a seeing-eye dog. And on this dog was the face of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. And he was wearing a leash with a, with a Star of David hanging around it. Now again, there was a big outcry over this, uh, thankfully, a big pushback. And the New York Times did issue an apology. Let me read you their full apology. They say we are deeply sorry for the publication of an anti-Semitic political cartoon last Thursday in the print edition of the New York Times, the international edition, I believe it was. Uh, the newspaper wrote we are committed to making sure nothing like this happens again. Such imagery is always dangerous, and at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise worldwide, it's all the more unacceptable. We have investigated how this happened and learned that because of a faulty process, a single editor working without adequate oversight downloaded the cartoon and made the decision to uh, include it in the opinion page. Again, is that really acceptable? I'm not really sure it is. How can an editor really not know that that is uh, anti-Semitic? Um, a New York Times columnist uh, who used to be the former Jerusalem Post editor, Brett Stevens, he wrote an opinion piece on this uh, on Sunday, slamming his paper's decision to run the cartoon. His, his comments are very interesting. He says, here was an image that in another age might have been published in the pages of Der Sturmer. Der Sturmer, Der Sturmer is the, um, the infamous Nazi, Nazi propaganda tabloid. And you'll find many cartoons almost identical to the one we saw in the New York Times in that magazine. He goes on to state, the Jew in the form of a dog, the small but wily Jew leading the dumb and trusting American, the hated Trump being Judaized with a skullcap. Now, he also chalked the publishing of the cartoon up to the almost torrential criticism of Israel and the mainstreaming of anti-Zionism by the Times and others. He goes on to say, as long as anti-Semitic arguments or images are framed as commentary about Israel, there will be a tendency to view them as a form of political opinion, not ethnic prejudice. Now, such a narrative is really the mainstreaming and normalising the presence of anti-Semitism. And it's hugely, uh, hugely concerning, uh, especially in light of Jewish history. Let me read to you a, a quote from historian Paul Johnson's work. He wrote a, a rather large book called History of the Jews. In that he writes this, 
Near the end of the book, one of the principal lessons of Jewish history has been that repeated verbal slanders are sooner or later followed by violent physical deeds. Time and time again over the centuries, anti-Semitic writings created their own fearful momentum, which climaxed in an effusion of Jewish blood. Okay, this is why uh, this is so serious. We need to understand just how uh, dangerous this sort of normalizing of anti-Semitism is. Um, Rabbi Shmuley Bateach on the 29th, he wrote an article for the Jerusalem Post where he comments, the city of York in England was the site of one of the grisliest mass murders of Jews in medieval times. Because of the sort of inflaming of anti-Semitism throughout medieval Europe in the 12th century, uh, obviously the time of the Crusades uh, didn't help this. On March the 16th, 1190, the entire Jewish community of York was massacred in a tower where they had attempted to escape persecution. And it was hoped that New York, a new city in the new world, though named after the old one, would be a great refuge for the Jews. And indeed it would go on to become the city with the largest Jewish population in history and it has been a friend to them. But the fact that the city's leading publication and newspaper of record seems to have decided that it's time to claw back to the spirit of the old York. Uh, powerful words there by Shmuley Bateok, Rabbi Shmuley. Um, it's definitely worth watching. Unfortunately, uh, there's a, an example now we can give that illustrates where I'm going with these warnings. And this April the 27th. Let me play for you the clip. On the last day of Passover, bloodshed in the middle of Shabbat services. You're going to have two victims. Habad uh, Poway near San Diego was packed when a 19-year-old white male shooter entered with an AR-style rifle and opened fire at 11.23 a.m. Authorities say he killed an older woman and injured at least three others, a young girl and two men, including the rabbi. According to eyewitnesses, the rabbi kept speaking. A gunman walked into the Chabad synagogue in San Diego and opens fire. And this is just six months after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. The man was a 19-year-old white nationalist and he fired more than 10 rounds of ammunition, leaving a 60-year-old woman dead and many others injured. Uh, the rabbi, Rabbi Israel Goldstein, he believe, I believe he lost uh, his finger or two of his fingers in the attack. The shooter left a manifesto. I'm not going to read it or give it any publicity, however, just to note that in this manifesto he describes how he believes Trump to be a puppet in the hands of the Jews. Now, I point this out because we just looked at a cartoon by the New York Times that had a picture of um, a blind Donald Trump with a skull cap on being led by Netanyahu, the Jew. You see, whilst I'm not saying there's a, maybe a direct causal connection between those two events, I'm saying there is a broad connection between this sort of anti-Semitic re rhetoric and the lessons like I read from the historian's warning that these things often lead to Jewish blood. Um, and then, unbelievably, to top off this very sad news cycle, April the 30th, the New York Times publishes yet another anti-Semitic cartoon, this time depicting Prime Minister Netanyahu with dark glasses, holding a tablet marked with the Star of David, taking a selfie, sort of referencing Netanyahu, seeing himself as a modern-day Moses. Again, just a cartoon that should not have been published at this tragic time, or at any time, to be quite frank. However, this does seem to be where we are today. 
If you want to dig into some of these issues a little bit further, I have written a number of articles on calvarychapel.com. One of these is called The Longest Hatred, Why Anti-Semitism Persists, and another article called Is Anti-Zionism the New Anti-Semitism? And on these two items, I will really just go into some of the theology and the background of these events to give you some more understanding. That. So if you just search my name, Thomas Fretwell, on the calvarychapel.com website, you'll be able to find those articles. Now let's end with a poll and then something that I like. April the 15th again, so this was just released in the lead up to Easter. The poll, a recent poll by Comres, surveying over 2,000 British adults, it came up with this result. Less than half of British Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Let me say that again. Less than half of British Christians believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Now, obviously, polling data like this, you have to be very careful with it. Um, but either way, this really is indicative of a problem that we have in Christianity, and that is really one of discipleship. If people who profess to be Christians don't even have an understanding of the uh, the atonement and the theology of the cross, um where are we going to go with this? This is a wake-up call to the church that we have a lot of work to do, and discipleship is the key in this, that is to come back to the authority and the teaching of the Word of God. Now, I'm hoping that these, just all these brief news items that I've shared with you, I want to just wake you up to what's going in the world, give you some commentary, really so that we can pray intelligently about these issues. We need to be praying into these issues that are affecting us in real life and around the world for our brothers and sisters, and hopefully this global update will do that for you. Now let's end with something that I love. I'm going to be sharing with you at the end of these global updates. I'm usually going to share with you one resource that I'm just really enjoying at the moment. And the resource that I want to share with you for this global update is the book by Peter J. Williams called Can We Trust the Gospels. Uh, Peter Williams, he's the principal of Tyndale House, which is the the Evangelical Research Centre in Cambridge, England, the only research centre like it in the world, really. Um, they produce their own Greek New Testament, and he also chairs the International Greek New Testament Project. Um, he's just written, it's a very relatively short book, so I don't want you to be scared off. It's not for academics, it's written for the uh, for the average Christian, but it is extremely uh, well written, and he provides a tantalising case for the reliability of the Gospels. He goes through looking at non-Christian sources from history that uh, testify to many details. He goes through an amazing chapter called The Knowledge of the Gospel Authors, Do They Know Their Stuff?, where he shows that everything down to the geography, the knowledge of geography, and local customs um, by these gospel authors testifies to their authenticity and their fact that they were eyewitnesses. He looks at issues about surrounding the corruption of the text. All in all, it's just a very good book. It's well worth a look. It's a short book, so I'd advise you get your copy of that and it will really inform you. I just want to say thank you for listening to this global update. If it's been helpful to you, please share this podcast on all your social media. Uh, I'd also ask you if you want to look for more details, please go to thomasfretwell.com and subscribe to my newsletter and you'll never miss an episode and also remember this is going under the theology and apologetics podcast feed so please go on itunes and subscribe to that until next time thank you for listening (music) 